Montebello Church Sermons. If you have Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. It is good to be back with you. Uh, we've been gone for a little while. Last night, yesterday, uh, Michelle and I uh, celebrated our 28th anniversary. And uh, we're going to do something special later on the week. So last night we were just getting together and, and I worked it out so that we could do something that we did on our honeymoon 28 years ago. Um, we actually... <laughs> you people need Jesus. Wow. No. We, got... we played Dr. Mario. That's what we did. The boys worked it out so we could get this little Nintendo thing, and we played Dr. Mario, something that we played on our honeymoon, and I got so mad. I threw the controller across the room on our honeymoon. Michelle was like, whoa, what did I marry? What happened here? So we wanted to test and see if I've matured. I haven't matured at all. (laughs) Not at all. And it doesn't help because she just kept beating me again and again and again. Oh, in the game, I mean. That's what I was saying. In the game. Just again and again. But uh, it is appropriate, especially since we, since Eric last week introduced our new series, wait for it, because February is Love Month. Oh, yeah. oh look at that. All right. And in fact, in a handful of days, there is going to be a special day that delights everyone single in a relationship or whatever because all the box of candies are going to go on clearance, which is fantastic. And maybe the best, healthiest way to look at this time of year because in this picture-perfect Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram world, it seems like there is so much pressure to get Valentine's just right, which also means that there is a lot of pressure and fear as well. And I will tell you that in my lifetime, I have never seen our culture become so caustic and judgmental and so quick to reject and shame and at the same time be, place such value on being accepted. Someone wrote this. They said, it has never been more impossible to fit in and yet fitting in has never been more important and valued. That's true in marriage, it's true in dating, it's true in parenting. In fact, in every relationship, one of the major complications that we have is that we take the virtue of love, and even with a subtle, unintentional twist, we end up enslaved to a false idol that we want to look at today. So as, you, uh, as we're looking at Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 21, and while you're looking there... I want to just remind you of the women's retreat that's coming up and the ski trip and the fundraisers that are coming up and to remind you that spending time together is the way we build relationships. And I understand that, that it is clear that, when, uh, that both isolation and relationships require a sacrifice. Relationships require that you have to get out and, and, and get out of your comfort zone. Isolation also requires you sacrifice the possibility of intimacy. So I'm not telling you what to do, but to remind you that to sign up for those things, of connecting up with those relationships, is really appropriate because this is Love Month. All right. 
Just making sure. Okay, if you'd stand with me. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are the members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Dear God, it is clear from this passage that love is so much more than some euphoric feeling of rapturous joy. It's so much more more than boy meeting girl and getting butterflies in their stomachs. Your word reveals that this is a profound mystery. Lord, the word mystery implies that we could miss out to, to over, overlook it. Rescue us from our blindness and from our expectations that we foolishly place on our relationships. Give us your vision with accuracy and truth so that in the end we might fully embrace a love relationship and not a poisonous counterfeit that will hurt us. We approach you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, he was alone. I don't mean he felt alone. All of us have felt lonely from time to time. And and it doesn't matter how intense that loneliness is. If you were to stray off the trail and suddenly find that, that you were off the main trail and you were truly lost and you didn't know how to get back, or you were left in the middle of the ocean with no land, no boats, or if you were trapped on a deserted island with a volleyball named Wilson, there would always be the possibility, no matter how remote, that someone, anyone might actually find you. But for him, that was not a reality. We know that he searched. We don't know for how long, but no matter what mountain he climbed or ocean he swam, no matter how loud he called out, he would never hear another human voice or see another human face. For all intents and purposes, he was the last man on earth. And that has an impact on you. In fact, we have laws against keeping someone separated from others Because isolation over an extended period of time, no matter how criminal you are, is damaging. Because relationships are as important as oxygen or water, because we are designed and wired for relationships. Even God, when he saw it, said it wasn't good. And so God, God went to take care of it. He created. Let me pause there just for a moment. Paul in the book of Romans reminds us something about the act of creation. It was something that a curator of one of my favorite photo galleries reminded me of. This isn't just any gallery. 
It's a gallery that is filled with works of art worth thousands and thousands of dollars. These are giant prints with perfect lighting, each one stunning, majestic. I'm not really a museum guy, but this is a National Geographic gallery, so every photo is award-winning. I look forward to it every year. It's one of my favorite things to do. I stepped into the photo gallery with kind of a quiet reverence because everyone in the place is quiet. It seems like everyone is just standing there in awe. These are breathtaking works of art that unapologetically grab your full attention. And I stood before the first work of art and was immediately lost in it. The detail, the color, the lighting, the image... I was so intensely focused on it, I didn't even notice that the curator of the gallery approached me. I just heard his voice quietly say to me, each image tells a story. The curator was saying, there's more to it. Go deeper, go even further. Later that next day, I looked out from the balcony of the seventh story of the building that we were in, And on the horizon, I saw a breathtaking ocean sunset. And overhead, the stars were taking over the sky with their diamond-like brilliance. And I remembered the words of the curator. Paul said it this way, Creation displays the invisible qualities of God, His personality and His power. Because this is true of everything that is created. Every work of art begins inside the artist. The hard work of creation is bringing what is private and on the inside out into the outside world where it's publicly displayed. And for every public display of that creation, attached to it is an invitation from the artist to encounter the intimate, private part of the artist that he has just put on display. But the reason that Paul is pointing all of this out is because he goes on to say that we in our rebellion turn our backs on that invitation and refuse to even acknowledge that there is an artist. But the beauty of creation is so powerful that we can't help but react in worship and in praise. And so we break into applause or to to hold our breath or to stare in reverent awe. But instead of worshiping the Creator, We cut the process short and we end up worshiping the creation. So when God creates, when God creates this other human, this precious work of art, someone that Adam has been craving for and searching for, that same danger applies. God creates Eve with breathtaking beauty. Someone like Adam, but with distinct and glorious differences that cause the romance in him to stir up and even turns Adam into a poet, quoting, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Romance was God's idea. Throughout scripture, we see romances like Ruth and Boaz and the book's of Proverbs or the Song of Solomon, which is an entire book, an erotic love poem about the beauty and brilliance of romance. But romance, as wonderful as it is, it is something that God created. And like all of creation, it is ultimately, in the end, an invitation to draw closer to the Creator. 
And in Ephesians 5, at first glance, it appears as though Paul is giving marriage advice to couples. But as soon as he starts talking about marriage, the relationship with God and the church keeps taking center stage and overshadowing any marriage advice. Just look at verse 25. Four words. Husbands, love your wives. And then, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Even towards the end of the passage, he seems to get lost in the wonder of this profound mystery, which we assume he's talking about marriage. But he catches himself and with the assumption that we've made, and he stops and says, of course, the, the mystery that I'm marveling at is the romance between Christ and the church, not between husband and wife. Understand that the greater we value something, the more likely it can become an idol. And romance is not the end goal. Paul has the right perspective. The purpose of romance is to reveal God's heart about our relationship with Him. That's why Paul keeps winding up marveling at Christ's relationship with you, the church. But if a culture refuses to acknowledge God, then all that's left for them to worship, they have to worship something, so they turn to romance as their object of adoration and worship. And our, our culture constantly shows that it is in love with love. Consider the songs that we have on the radio. Almost all of them are about either falling in love, pursuing love, bemoaning the loss of love. Elvis can't help but fall in love. The Bee Gees want to know how deep is your love. Foreigner wants to know what love is. Rihanna found love. Diana Ross warned to stop in the name of love. Whitney Houston will always love you. Elton John wants to know if you can feel the love tonight. Beyonce is crazy in love. Huey Lewis is asking, do you believe in love? Journey wants to send her my love. For Kesha, your love is her drug. Air Supply has run out of love. Nat King Cole is in the mood for love. Stevie Wonder just called to say he loves you. Robert Palmer, he's addicted to love. And Meatloaf... Mm, meatloaf would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I don't know what that is. Don't know what that is. And Dean Barton warned, you are nobody till somebody loves you. And Ariana Grande, with her romantic song, Cup With Your Girlfriend, I'm Bored, has nothing to do with love, but I just had to add, add that in there just because I don't even understand that. Confused. What about our movies? Growing up watching Disney movies, it is clear what makes happily ever after. Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. You can't be a princess without a prince. On TV, we see a version of this, who is fairest of them all, on The Bachelor and Bachelorette. A competition where the prize is not cash, but a final rose, true love the prince and the princess. And everybody else, everybody else is a loser <laughs> who was rejected and sent home in a limo to cry on camera. And one of the very worst places for all of this 
is the church culture. I mean, our intentions are so pure, but it's clear what everyone is thinking. As a youth pastor, there was not this not-so-subtle message in all the books that were written to the kids. I kissed dating goodbye, or programs like True Love Wait, which assumes everyone is going to get married. And their goal is just to make it to the altar without having sex, because if you do that, well, you know, you live happily ever after. But the problem is that if the only reason you're getting married is so that you can have sex when your sex life struggles, then you're left wondering, why did we even get married? But that mentality is so opposite of God's kingdom values and his priorities. Paul actually goes out of his way in 1 Corinthians 7 to say, those staying single and focused on their relationship, that is plan A. Notice in verse 26, he says this in 1 Corinthians 7, because of this present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't, ask, don't seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I just want to spare you from this. And then he goes on in verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. How can he please the Lord? But a married man is concerned with the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. And an unmarried woman and virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please her husband. I'm saying all of this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul actually goes on to remind even married people that in the end, all of this is going to pass away, including marriage. He's not saying that marriage is wrong, not at all. He's just reminding us that the main character is God and our focus needs to keep him as the priority. When we get this all twisted, we put too much weight on relationships. Let me be clear. Your spouse is not your savior. They didn't die on the cross for your sins. Redemption is not found in marriage or in having kids. Your family, your friends, your church will never be able to grant you all you wish for. By the way, neither will God. And here's why. Because he's not your servant and because he's not your genie. God's purpose, your spouse's purpose, your parents' purpose, your friend's purpose is not to meet all of your expectations. Marriage will not bring about happily ever after. It was never intended or designed for that. But we are fooled into believing that your life will be straightened around by finding your soulmate or having kids or having a best friend or just getting a mentor. The problem is that if they become the one that you depend on to be your source of joy, that when they fail to give you joy and they will fail, then you'll feel betrayed and you will either withdraw your love because if they're not giving you their love, you have no love to give to them. Or if you just keep serving them out of duty and obligation, that you will end up feeling used. Or you'll become arrogant believing 
that you are the noble martyr, that it will eventually lead to contempt, which leads to taking passive-aggressive jabs at them in a lame attempt to try to get them to move in the right direction. Because, you know, nothing stirs up romance like contempt and passive-aggressive jabs. So sexy. But on the other side of the fence, if your spouse views you with contempt and you're tempted at that point to fight back and start keeping score in your work and you work diligently to try to meet the expectations, try to get back in their good graces, even though your life is under a microscope, you can spend the rest of your life groveling and apologizing, which, by the way, just reinforces the fact that you really are the problem, that you really are the screw-up. Or worse yet, you eventually come to the place where you just give up because you've decided this is a losing game. And you may not get divorced, but you're just running the clock out waiting for either one of you to die. You know, living the dream. Problem is, when you serve a false idol, you will always wind up in slavery. But in this passage, Paul takes marriage off the pedestal and restores it to its rightful place as a blessing, not as the blesser. Paul says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ is the engine that runs everything. I honor Christ by honoring my wife. I serve Christ by serving my kids. I embrace Christ by embracing those around me. The focus is not on my marriage, but on Christ. He is my source of satisfaction and delight. Instead of trying to please those around me, I seek to bless them. Or more accurately, God uses me to bless them. I worship him by loving others. When I first got married, it seemed wise to go to Michelle and ask her how I can be a good husband to her. But here's the problem. That puts so much pressure on her. She's never been a husband before. And in fact, this passage is not telling me that my goal is to please my wife. My goal is to show reverence and honor to Christ. And he's the one who shows me the kind of husband I need to be. So some of you need to resign from being your spouse's Lord and Savior and allow Jesus to take his place back on the throne. Eric talked last week about the junior hire that snuck into class and asked, how do we have a relationship with God? One of the most powerful tools that God uses in answering that question is through an understanding of how we have relationships with those around us. In fact, our human relationships are so important to our relationship with God that 1 John 4.20 says this, If you say you love God and you hate a brother, then you are a liar. Because if you don't love the one whom you can see, how can you love God who you cannot see? The relationships in your life, like all creation, ultimately is an invitation to deepen your relationship with the Creator. So don't stop short. The tools that we uncover to strengthen our relationships with friends and family, man, they are important for us to use those tools to further an intimate relationship with God. 
In fact, next week we're going to be looking at some of those keys. But I want to give you a word of caution. Several years ago, Michelle and I ran across a situation where it was required that we needed to call the police. It was a big area, so it was hard to accurately direct the police to exactly where they needed to go. So it was determined that I needed to kind of keep a lookout for them for when they arrived. And when they finally showed up, just like we were worried about, they were headed to the wrong area. And so I quickly tried to catch up with the officer and kind of redirect him in the right place. And he didn't notice me until I almost had caught up to him from behind. Let me explain what I discovered that day. Do not casually approach the powerful, especially if it is a policeman with a gun. Because he spun around and he reached for his weapon and he barked out an order that corrected my foolish approach. God is not your buddy. He's mighty in power and holy beyond understanding. And this word reverence is a word that is filled with that kind of warning. He is your father, but he is not to be taken lightly. That's part of what makes his love so amazing. We need to approach him with humility and reverence. But we need to approach him because he's invited you into a relationship. He's made the first move. The relationship has already begun. First John says, he first loved us. You see, love requires a risk. There is no intimacy without vulnerability. In fact, the more vulnerability leads to deeper intimacy. He made himself completely vulnerable. But intimacy needs both sides to be vulnerable. How vulnerable have you been with him lately? When was the last time that you took intimate time with God? I don't just mean read the words in his book. The Pharisees read God's word. They had it memorized, all of it. It doesn't mean that they had a relationship with him. Have you entered into the intimacy of his word? Have you responded with an open heart? Do your times of prayer and interaction with him sound like duty or obligation? Or maybe it doesn't happen at all. Have you given him access to what is really going on inside your life? Your fears, your hurts, your frustrations, your disappointments, your doubts? He knows what no one else knows. And he's invited you into a relationship where you can pour out your heart. For some people, that means that you need to pour out your heart into a journal, interact with him on paper. For some, that means you need to spend some time alone with him, worshiping in song. For some, you need just time away to be in nature on a walk or in a hike, drive down the road with no other distractions. That's a key we learned in relationships. When Michelle and I want to grow closer, we get away from everything else. For David in Psalm 131, he commits to avoid thinking heavy, lofty thoughts or complicated plans, but instead he quiets his soul and allows his soul to be like a child in his mother's arms, not waiting to be fed, but simply 
to be held. How long has it been since you've done something like that, just been embraced by him, reminded of his love for you? How is your relationship with him? Have you lost your first love? Because guess what? Nothing else matters. We have this weekend marriage getaway that we do where before you go away on the weekend, you've got to kind of do this assessment and talk through like where you're at in the relationship because it is so easy over time to just kind of, without even realizing, growing distant and apart and take some time to do this assessment so that you can find out where things really are, where you can be honest about where things are. As helpful as that tool is in our marriage, what would that assessment look like in the hands of Christ? And you were to ask him, how are we doing relationally? How are we doing? We see something like this in the book of Revelation. Jesus is talking to a group of churches, and over and over again, he offers an honest assessment of these churches. Over and over Sometimes without the church even knowing that the vitality of its first love has faded and grown cold. But Christ is speaking to them as a passionate lover, calling them back into intimacy. He offers this renewed call back to his heart, to calling you back. Romance. As incredible and amazing and astounding as it is, it's just the beginning. Christ is calling you to have an intimate relationship with him. This morning, he's calling you and pulling you back to that incredibly important thing that you have in your relationship with him. Let's pray. With your eyes closed and your head bowed, where are you standing in your relationship with Christ? What is he calling you to? Is there a reason why you've held back? Is there a reason why it's become less and less of a priority? Is there a reason why their love has grown cold? One of the most important parts is to begin there. Maybe you just say, well, I don't feel like we're connected. Sometimes there is an act of faith where you simply need to do what needs to be done for a relationship to grow deeper. Dear God, thank you for the incredible blessings of the relationship that you've given us. They truly are works of art, but God, forgive us for falling victim to honoring the art more than the artist. God, bring your invitation with renewed freshness. Free us from the false idol of turning to earthly relationships for our source of satisfaction. Forgive us for enslaving our friends and our spouses and our family with our lofty demands. May we always honor you by the way that we honor them. God, we release them from the pedestal that we place them on, and we declare that you are our Lord and Savior. You are our deliverer, not them. Forgive us from twisting your kingdom values and shaming those who follow you without distraction, those that have remained single. May their focus move from doing something about their singleness to doing something with their singleness. 
and even those of us who are married, may we be mindful that those relationships that we have are only for a time. So may each of our relationships spur us on to a deeper and more intimate relationship with you, that we might come to you and worship you alone, that we would make you the focus. Father, that every blessing that you give us draws us back to being in close relationship with the one who blesses, for us to not stop short, for us to remember that each one of these are invitations to us to worship at your feet and to fall more deeply in love with you. Montebello Church Sermons.